And we'll be in Romans chapter 13. Romans 13. So, a few weeks ago, we were actually in Romans. I guess it was two weeks ago, uh, Ezra came and taught Romans chapter 13, verse 1 through 7. He always humbles me as a Bible teacher because he's way younger than me, and yet he has way more understanding about Scripture. Um, But it's good for me because it spurs me on to get better at it. And then uh, a couple of weeks, I guess three weeks ago now, uh, Steve Persley came up and he taught Romans chapter 12, which is a long chapter, and he covered it very well. He talked about uh, basically the theme from this point on in Romans, and I think it changes at one point, but the theme of the, the section we're in right now in Romans starts in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, where he says, I beseech you, or I beg of you, brethren, therefore, in light of all that God has already done for us, explained in the chapters 1 through 11, that you present your bodies as living sacrifices before the Lord, holy and acceptable, which is our reasonable service. This is a reasonable request from Paul, because he's just explained in chapters 1 through 3, the utter sinfulness of man. Man's undeservedness of God's love, God's protection, his provision of salvation. Not one person on earth, not even the best of the best, deserves to be saved because we have all fallen short of the glory of God. And he explained that in chapter 1, verse 18, through about chapter 3, verse 20. He said, man is depraved and without God helping him, he is a mess and he's going to cause destruction. And then chapter 3, verse 21 through chapter 5, verse 11, he takes time to talk about God's plan for man to be justified in his sight. He doesn't just see us in our, in our place of uh, you know, depravity and sinfulness and leave us there in the muck and the mire. He is moved with compassion. Compassion is a word that means mercy, but compa- mercy is just compassion in action. It's compassion that causes us our hearts to go out and it causes our limbs to do something about it. And so the Lord explains that, hey, man's sinful, but I've provided a way that he can be saved and cleansed and forgiven and given peace. The peace of God that brings us and makes us right with God. So then in chapters 5 through 8, about the end of chapter 8, he gives us an explanation for the Christian of this process called sanctification. Because I think a lot of people get the wrong idea. Okay, God saved me, so now I'm perfect, right? Well, if you've ever tried living that out, you realize that that's not the case. God saved me by, by His grace. I didn't deserve it. And I show up to the kingdom of, of, kingdom of God, and I'm not what I'm supposed to be yet. And the beauty of what He tells us in those few chapters is, it's okay. God didn't expect you to just show up on His doorstep and just be ready to go full blast. What he said was, I bring people in that aren't ready. And I love that because I'm not ready at this point. And I'm eight years in. But the beauty of it is that God is continually allowing circumstances in our lives. And he's giving us his spirit, empowering us to change. To be changed by him. We don't have to pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We have to allow him to live in us. And to change us by the renewing of our minds. And as he does that, the beauty of it is we become more and more like Jesus, which is the standard. The guy sitting next to you, the person that you live with, the people that you work with that call themselves Christians, they're not the standard. Because if they are, they fall short too, and you're just going to be a copy of a copy. But the beauty of it is God wants to make us like Jesus, and if he is the example and he never changes, then that standard never changes. But he doesn't just say, hey, be holy for I am holy. But he says, I'm going to give you the power to do that. I'm going to give you the power to change and become more like me. And then in chapter 9 through 11, he gives us, and he kind of stops and he does this parenthetical section. He talks about the plan of God through the nation of Israel and how he's sovereign over everything that's going on right now. That though the Jews had this Messiah that was meant for the world come through their nation, And even though they, for the majority, have rejected this salvation through this Messiah that their scriptures foretold, that God is not finished with them, and even their rejection of Jesus means that for you and I, we have the opportunity to receive that Messiah that they've rejected. So it's all part of his plan. 
And he, when the fullness of the Gentiles comes, when the last Gentile, the non-Jew, the last one who is supposed to be saved is saved, you know what's going to happen? He's going to open the eyes of the Jews, the Israelites, and they're going to look at him and they're going to go, hey, this is the one that God told us was coming. Why did we not see him before? And they're going to ask Jesus personally, where did you get those wounds? And he's going to say, I got these wounds in, in the house of my father. The people that I came through, the people that I came to, to explain, I'm your Messiah, I'm the Savior. They killed me. But it's okay, because God's using it for his greater purposes. And you can be saved too. And their eyes will be open, they'll receive Jesus, and they'll come to the fulfillment of all that was ever supposed to happen. And they will have that relationship with their God that they were always supposed to have. And so in the meantime, we have this opportunity, this moment in history where we get to proclaim that Jesus is the Savior of the world and he uses you and I as his vessels to proclaim that message. And so in chapter 12, verse 1, Paul strongly urges those who have been reading from the Roman church, hey, in light of all that I've just shown you, which is a lot, the expansion of your understanding of God's overarching plans, in light of that, I urge you by the mercies of God, all that I just told you about, those are God's mercies. I urge you, he says, in light of all that God has done and shown us, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice before God, holy and acceptable, which is our reasonable service. You want to make an offering to God. A lot of people come to God and they say, well, I, I got to give something to God. And they want to offer either something practically or some sort of service, or they want to put up a billboard, and that's all good. But if you're not giving your life to serve God, if you're not giving Him you, then you're missing the point, because that's where it has to start. You have to give you to, to the Lord, because He died in your place, so that you could give yourself back. So how do I make my life a living sacrifice? So Paul basically expounded upon that a couple of weeks ago when Steve was teaching Romans chapter 12. He gave some very practical things. So if you, haven't, if you weren't here that week, go back and read Romans 12. Go to the website and you can actually listen to Steve's teaching, the recording. And it's on there underneath the sermons. You can just click and you can listen along. You can open up your Bible. What I love about being able to have it on the website is if, if we're talking too fast and we're rushing ahead and you need to read something, pause it. You can't pause me here, but you can on the internet. You know, isn't that great? You know, and you can even fast forward through the stuff you don't want to listen to if you want. You know, you can say, hey, I'm going to listen to the next week. Maybe it's better. But the reality is you can stop and go, hey, I didn't get all that. That was a lot. And that's okay. Sundays are to be a smorgasbord. If you ever go to a buffet and you try to eat every piece of food that's on there and enjoy everything, you can't. You'll explode. And you won't taste any of it because you'll be full. You're like, I'm not even interested anymore. Maybe some of you are different than me. That's me. You know, there used to be a time where I literally could try everything. Um, but then age caught up with me and now my metabolism's lower and you know the rest of the story. But then he says there in verse 3 through 8 of Romans chapter 12, he says, here's how you present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Number one, be humble. Chapter 12, verse 3 through 8, he basically says, be humble and recognize that God's given you gifts. On the day of your salvation... When you accept the Lord, not the day of your baptism, but the day that you say, Lord, I'm yours. Now there is baptism that comes afterwards, and that's a step of obedience. But on the day that you're saved, God baptizes you in the Holy Spirit. Now, at the same time, Scripture teaches this thing where we can ask for Him to give us the Holy Spirit. We, we are always to be wanting more. More of Him and less of us. That's what John the Baptist said. In order for Jesus to become famous... He must increase and I must decrease. There should be less of Mike Mingy and more of Jesus Christ in my life. Well, how do I do that? I have to be filled with the Spirit of God. How do I do that? Ask Him to fill you. I don't know exactly how He does it, but I know He calls us vessels and He can pour. You know, He doesn't give in measure. We say, Lord, I want your Holy Spirit. He pours out. He's like, have as much as you want. It's an everlasting source. I want to give you more of me. And so when we're willing vessels and we say, Lord, fill me, he will. So as a part of that filling, he's gifted each one of us with different gifts. He's given me the gift of teaching. And so that's what I, why I do what I do. Not because someone told me to, but because the Lord said, I want you to teach my church. I want you to feed my sheep. 
Feed my lambs. Same thing he told Peter. And you, in the same way, have been gifted, whether it's hospitality. Many people have the gift of hospitality, and they just, they're always looking at other people, trying to see what they need, so they can meet that need. That's the gift of hospitality. That's not just because you're a nice person. That's because the Lord has given that to you. Recognize that and say, Lord, how do you want to use this gift? For some of you, you've been given the gift of someone who gives intercession or prays on behalf of other people. You don't necessarily get in there and do something practical, what we would think practical, but you get in there and you're just like, I'm going to pray for that person. I've had people like that in my life. There's one guy that came and met me for the first time in California, and he said, hey, we visited with you about a month ago. You know my wife. You've known my wife for a long time. I just feel like God wants me to pray for A.B. Chapel and for you guys as a couple. And I said, sounds great. I could always use more prayer. He said, let me, let me know what your prayer needs are. And so once in a while, he'll email me. He's not just saying it. He's doing it. He'll email me and say, hey, how can I pray for you this week? And I'll go, well, this is what's going on right now. You know, because there's always needs we have. And the Lord provides for those needs. And sometimes it's just the comfort of knowing, hey, somebody outside of my situation is praying for me. God has gifted the church with people that are like that. For some people, he's given the gift of prophecy. The ability to not only tell the word of God, but also to speak into people's lives because of their understanding of Jesus and what his purposes are for us. We need to be filled with the Holy Spirit so we can bless one another in those ways. And so that's just a short version of that. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there's, there's a more uh, expressive list of that. It goes more in depth. That was kind of a side note this morning. So be humble, realize that God's given you gifts to serve the church of God, and then see how he wants to use you. And many times he'll use you right wherever you're at, whether it's at your job, whether it's in the setting of the church, whether it's if you go to someone's house, God's looking to use you to be his hands and feet where you're at. And then verse 9 through 21, he says, behave like a Christian in practical, and then there's some not so practical ways. You know, bless those who persecute you, uh, that's not practical. That's actually hard. That's sacrificial. How do I do that? He says, you can't. Ask for me to do it through you. Because here's the reality. Jesus died in your place so that you would die to yourself and he could fill you with his life. Because Jesus isn't dead. He says, I go to the Father, but I'm going to send you the Helper, the Holy Spirit. And what's going to happen is, now that the life that you live, I can live through you because you've died to yourself and you're alive to God in Christ. And so he wants to fill us with Jesus. And I love that because it goes along with what I was saying earlier, that Jesus might live and fill us and live through us. So, that being said, this theme in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, uh, presenting our bodies as Christians as a living sacrifice before God, not just a sacrifice, but a holy and an acceptable sacrifice, which is our reasonable service, is by using our gifts and, and also by uh, practically living out and trying to do what Jesus did for people. When we do what Jesus did, it points people to Jesus. It doesn't point them to us because they know us. They knew us before Christ. They knew us before we started going to church. They knew us before we started praying before meals. They knew us, and they're like, that's not that guy anymore. There's been a change, and I can't explain it, but I want that. Or, I can't stand that, and you become kind of a thorn in their side. But either way, what happens is the Holy Spirit does what he said he would do. When Jesus said, I go to be with the Father, he says, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will do three things. He will convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. Those three things are not to convict the world directly by the Holy Spirit. What they're supposed to do is convict us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And then our lives, as we live them out and we're convicted about those things and we start to make changes in things, whether it's what we watch or what we spend our time doing or the conversations that we have, when we're around people that don't know the Lord, it's going to rub them the wrong way many times. They're going to be like, that dude's weird. You seriously only watch Pixar movies? Like, what about, you know, Death Blow 4? You're not watching that? You're not watching the, you know, whatever your thing might be. For me, I had to put away some movies. Because for me, I couldn't unsee a lot of stuff. 
and because I am a little angry sometimes. And so to watch angry movies or people like shooting people isn't good for me. And so God changed that in me. And as he did that, people were like, well, why aren't you watching that? Is it because you're a Christian? And I just look at them and say, no, because the Lord wants to do something new with me. And I look at it this way. If I can't watch it with my daughter, I probably shouldn't be watching it because God wants me to be like a child by faith. And so here we are, Romans chapter 12, verse 1. The theme is present your bodies as a living sacrifice before God, holy and acceptable, which is our reasonable response to all that God has done. And so in chapter 13, he's continuing on the same thing. He says, hey, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to show the world Jesus through your life. And here's two practical ways to do it in chapter 13. Practical way number one, I want to change the way that you interact with your government. Now you're saying, wait a minute, we have an ungodly government. Why in the world would God call us to submit to an ungodly government? Well, Paul explains that in chapter 13, verse 1 through 7. And I'm just going to read it because I needed to read it again. He says, let every soul, every soul, be subject to the governing authorities. Being subject means to put yourself under. It's the idea if you were a subject of a king, you're under his dominion. If he tells you to do something, you've got to do it. Now, there's, there's going to be a balance in that. He says, there, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Now, try to swallow that with the government that we're in. God appointed the people that are in power right now. That's, that's hard to grasp, right? But it's the truth. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Then do what's good. And if you will have praise from the same, for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. That's the idea of capital punishment. God's ordained that, and he uses government to do that. Now, like I said, I'm going to get the balance of this because there's two sides to the coin. Therefore, verse 5, you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. That's everybody's favorite. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, and customs to whom customs Fear to whom fear, and honor to whom honor. So, this is a tricky passage, and I'm so glad that Ezra taught it a couple weeks ago, and I can skip over some of it. But let's look at how Jesus dealt with his government. Now remember, his government, what did they do to him? They killed him. So, think of the worst thing that the government could do to you. Okay, well then I don't have to listen to him. Well, Jesus did. So turn with me to John chapter 19. In John chapter 19, Jesus has been put on trial with him, uh, excuse me, with Pontius Pilate. And there was, in the other accounts, there's kind of a back and forth between Herod and Pontius Pilate, but we're just going to focus in on Pontius Pilate. So as he was there with Pontius Pilate, in chapter 19, he's already basically, they've said, hey, we want you to crucify him, we don't care whether there's evidence or not. And he said, hey, I've got this murderer that's in jail, we're going to put him to death, do you want to kill him? Or Jesus, because I'm only going to kill one. And so uh, they did what all religious people did do. They said, why don't you kill Jesus and let go of the murderer? Right? That's sometimes what happens. Whether it's right or wrong, it is what happens. So they say, crucify Jesus. Don't just kill him, but take the worst way that you kill people right now and do that to Jesus. Because he's kind of rubbing us the wrong way. And so in chapter 19, verse 1, it says, So then Pilate took Jesus and had him scourged. Now this was kind of like putting him under the hot light. They, they scourged him, no doubt, but they were trying to do it to get a confession out of many of the prisoners. And they would scourge him until basically they'd say, hey, I did it, you're right, I don't, stop beating me, stop destroying my flesh. But here's what it says in verse 2. The soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They put on him a purple robe, 
Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, that you may know that I find no fault in him. In other words, he's been examined. Now, if you read that in the book of Acts, it says that they examined Paul. It means they scourged him. They shred up his back. They whipped him. They beat him with rods. It says there, though, that Jesus was found to have no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, and Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Look, here he is. Here's your prisoner. Here's the man that you want dead. So they wanted them to see, he wanted them to see, hey, I've, I've whipped him pretty hard. He's, if he did do something wrong, he's, he's gotten a punishment. Therefore, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, crucify him, crucify him. No mercy. Recognize that. Pilate said to them, you take him and crucify him for I find no fault in him. In other words, why don't you guys deal with it? Because I can't legally put him to death. Now, they had Pilate with his arm behind his back because Pilate was already not very favored by the government that he served. He was a governor over an area and Caesar had already heard too much from this region because of the conflict between the Jews and the Gentiles. And so Pilate recognized that if he got in trouble and the Jews made a big stink, they might take his governorship away. And so he feared man more than he feared God. He didn't have a relationship with God. And so he succumbed to peer pressure. And that happens, right? If you are a double-minded man, you'll be unstable in all your ways. And so he does this. And uh, it says there in verse 7, The Jews answered him, We have a law. According to our law, he ought to die because he made himself the son of God. In other words, they're charging him with blasphemy. Therefore, when Pilate heard that saying, he was the more afraid. And he went again into the praetorium and he said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus didn't answer him. And then Pilate said to him, Are you not speaking to me? Do you not know that I have the power to crucify you and the power to release you? Why don't you talk? Defend yourself. And Jesus said a very important phrase, and this is the point of me telling this whole story. He said, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, the one who delivered me to you has the greater sin. The government, as we know it, has no power against us as Christians unless God allows it. So therefore, keep on keeping on. Romans 8.28 God uses all things to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. So if God allows it, keep serving Jesus anyway. So that's what He taught. So number two... God gives us government and we are to submit to it, but there is a time when we are to reject their orders. And that is when they tell us to do things that are contrary to God's command and instruction for us. They tell us to stop preaching the gospel. You don't have to be rude about it, but you keep on keeping on. You keep telling people about Jesus until your last breath, because the reality is that's why we're still here. And I know this because in Acts chapter 5 this happened. So turn with me to Acts chapter 5. It's easy for me to say keep going, but it's a whole other thing when you see people that were, had their lives threatened and they did keep going. It's encouraging. The testimony of the Lord. So in Acts chapter 5 verse 12, we have a story or a recounting by Dr. Luke who penned this book. It says that in the early church, verse 12, chapter 5, through the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were done among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, yet none of the rest dared to join them. But the people esteemed them highly, and believers were increasingly added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they brought the sick out into the streets, they laid them on beds and couches, that at least the shadow of Peter passing by might fall on some of them. And also a multitude gathered from the surrounding cities to Jerusalem, bringing sick people and those who were tormented by unclean spirits, and they were all healed. So there was power and there was unity. That's a sign of the Holy Spirit guiding the church. And then the high priest rose up and all those who were with him, which is the sect called the Sadducees, and they were filled with indignation and they laid their hands on the apostles. These are the apostles 
that have been healing people and preaching in the name of Jesus, they laid hands on them and they put them in the common prison. But at night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. In other words, continue to proclaim Jesus. You're not done yet. And I'm going to set you free so you can keep going. Now that didn't always happen. But when the officers, verse 22, came and did not find them in the prison, they returned and reported, saying, Indeed, we found the prison shut securely, and the guards standing outside before the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. And when the priest, the high priest, the captain of the temple, and the chief priests heard these things, they wondered what the outcome would be. You know, what happened? So one came and told them, saying, Look, the men whom you put in prison... They're standing in the temple and they're teaching the people. The, th- the very thing you arrested them for, they're doing it again. Like, wh- who let them go? How did this happen? They're in awe. They're in wonder. This is good because they're, they're in wonder because they've seen the works of God, whether they recognize it or not. And then the captain went from the officers and he brought them without violence, for they feared the people lest they should be stoned. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? Now, at this point, I'd be a smart aleck. I've got to be honest. I'd have been like, yeah, but you put me in jail too. What happened there? They don't do that though. So probably bad advice to do that. He says, uh, did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and you intend to bring this man's blood on us. Now, may it be said of us at some point, that we are so filled with the Lord and His Word that people would accuse us of filling this valley with the Word of God. That's a pretty good accusation. If I'm going to go to jail for anything, may it be that. But then he says, You intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. Because the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. That probably got him aggravated. And him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And we are his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Now, number one, I want to point out, when they're filled with the Holy Spirit, they're not defending themselves. They say, hey, we got to obey God rather than you. If you're telling us not to proclaim this, the Holy Spirit told us otherwise, and we're going to keep doing that because we fear Him, not you. But they also, they weren't defending themselves. They said, in their defense of what they were doing, what God had told them to do, then they also shared the same message they had already been sharing. So they didn't just say, hey, we can do this if we want. They said, we can do this if we want because the Lord told us to do it. Oh, and by the way, here's the message we were telling them. Here's the gospel. You're accountable for what you hear. So when someone tells someone the gospel, they have an opportunity to respond whether they realize it or not. Now these men didn't respond likely. They, they were pretty aggravated. They were not listening. They, they just wanted them to stop because they were losing their prominence in the community. They were no longer looked at as authorities. And so they were being robbed in their minds, but the gospel was being brought forth. So, when the government or anyone in authority says, you cannot preach the gospel, uh, God told me to and I have to keep going. And the reality is God will protect you in that. If he wants you to go in prison, realize he's going to use you to preach in prison. You know There are things in the Bible that are not politically correct anymore. And the reality is for me to teach the whole counsel of the word of God, at some point in our generation, I believe that I could go to jail for that. And I've prayed about that because... Number one, who's going to take care of my family? Number two, who's going to continue to lead the church? But the reality is, is if God calls me to go to jail, he's going to raise up somebody else to take care of the church. It's his church. And if God calls me to go to jail, he's going to bless my family while I'm in there. One way or another. He's going to provide a family for them. And so I'm not going to go looking for it, but if it happens, I know that God can use it for his purposes. And it's the best for me. It's the safest place for me to be. And it's the safest place for you to be. And so I've kind of gone on with that, even though Ezra taught it, but I wanted to reemphasize what, what was taught. So there in Romans chapter 13, verse 7, Paul wraps up this section of instruction. This is how we are to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. 
He wraps it up there in verse 7. He says, Render therefore to all their due, taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs are due, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. This is all an act of worship. When you have to pay your taxes, you're worshiping the Lord, whether you want to look at it that way or not. And if you look at it that way, it'll be a lot less hard to do. I really believe that. You'll find joy going, hey, I'm doing the Lord's will. I don't have as much money anymore, but I'm doing the Lord's will. You know, God's going to provide what I need. And then he continues in the second section that is about loving our neighbor. And that's the main point of what I'm going to teach today. He says this in verse 8. Owe no one anything except to love one another, for he who loves another has fulfilled the law. What's the law he's talking about? He's talking about the law of Moses. You know, and he's going to continue to expound upon that in verse 9. But he says, owe no one anything. The reality is, You've been forgiven by God. You've been saved by His grace. You don't owe anyone anything except to love one another as God in Christ loved you. Verse 9, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, and in the Exodus 20 it says against your neighbor, uh, you shall not covet, which means to yearn for somebody else's stuff. Don't covet This is something that's a little bit deeper than an outward. It's an inward thing. And if there is any other commandment, all are summed up in this saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfillment of the law. Well, that's kind of crazy because I thought the law just told you what not to do. And it does. In uh, the first four, ten commandments that everyone hopefully knows, and you should know them, we, Christ fulfilled the law, but we also are living it out according to the Spirit. We no longer have to, but God does it through us. But the first four commandments of the first ten commandments are this. They're dealing with man's relationship to God. When man's relationship to God becomes right, then man's relationship with his fellow man will be correct. And so, he says, you shall not have any other gods before me. That's the first one. You shall not make carved images of anything and worship them as if they're gods. Number three, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Number four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And then the next six, like I said, deal with man's relationship to man. When we're worshiping God and we have him in our proper perspective and we're living in the fear and the awe of him, then we'll treat our fellow man correctly because man is made in God's image. There's not one person, whether you like them or dislike them, that you should treat unfairly or unjustly because we are all made in God's image. Whether they're surrendered to God or not, they bear the image of God. I was thinking about that as I was thinking about the story that Peter said this. He said, hey, uh, Jesus, are we supposed to pay taxes? And Jesus says, well, show me a coin. uh, Whose image is on that coin? He says, well, Caesar's. He goes, well, then render to Caesar's that which is Caesar's, and to God, that which is God's. Now, we bear the image of God. People that don't know the Lord, they bear the image of God. They're made in His likeness. Body, soul, spirit, body, mind, spirit. And so, the reality is, there's not one person that's not deserving in some way of our mutual respect or honor just due to the fact that God made them. He's their creation. They're His creation. And so he says, if you love one another, if you love your neighbor, you fulfill the law. So that's an amazing thing. But it's not just about what we don't do to them. Loving your neighbor is not not murdering them. I mean, obviously, you know, if you murder your neighbor, you're not loving them. I get that. But you can't say, you know, somebody says, hey, do you love your neighbor? Well, I didn't kill him. I mean, would anybody in here go, well, you, man, you really love them. No, you go, wow, you really don't hate them. You know, like, you don't hate them, but you, I, don't, I can't prove that you love them either. You know, I don't commit adultery against them or with them. You know, that's, that's not loving your neighbor. That's the world's idea of love. You know, I, I'm supposed to love my neighbor. That's what I was doing. No, that's sin. That's lust. That's taking something that's not yours. It starts with coveting and it goes further. Um, 
You don't steal their stuff. I mean, that starts with coveting, too. When you steal some, well, do you love your neighbor? Well, I didn't steal their lawn <laughs> ornament. No, that's not love. That's not hate. Well, we're not called to be not things. As Christians, we're called to be disciples. Not to not be haters. You know, haters going to hate. So, here's what happens. Paul starts to express this, and he says, love does no harm to a neighbor. So how are we supposed to love our neighbor? How are we supposed to, to show his love to our neighbors? Well, here's what Jesus said. He says, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And he says, you know, to his disciples, he said this, as he, was, he had just washed their feet. He says, see what I've done for you? Now go and do likewise for one another. Go wash people's feet. Now did he mean go door to door, take a bucket, and wash people's feet? Well, in that day, they had to have their feet washed when they came in. They had sandals on. There was manure everywhere. Now, there are places where that's the case. I get it. But we got something cool called shoes with sides on them. So what does it mean to wash someone's feet? Well, it means to help them deal with their nastiness. Be with them through hard times. Uh, love them when they're being a turd. You know? and, and most people, God's called us to love are real people. They got problems. They got issues. They got hang-ups. So God didn't call us to love this ideal person that we think, man, when they cross my path, I'm just going to let it rip. I'm going to love them till they can't stand anymore. No. When they come across our path and we start loving them, it's going to get worse. They're going to become less lovable because they're going to be like, why are they doing that for me? And then they're going to start treating us wrongly. But as God softens their heart through us doing the things that Jesus does for you and I, Hopefully, they'll soften their hearts to receive Jesus. Because that's really what we're trying to be to them, Jesus. So, I, there was a guy I was reading this week, and this is a couple of things he said about loving people. This guy named David Guzik, he's a pastor. He says this, It's easy for us to love in the theoretical and in the abstract, but God demands that we love real people. Real people got issues, right? And then he said this, it's easy to do all the right religious things, but at the same time to neglect um, love. Our love is the true measure of our obedience to God. So we're to reflect God's character in the way that we love people. And uh, Paul here is really just teaching the same thing that Jesus um, had taught in uh, Matthew chapter 22. I'm going to turn there real quick. Matthew chapter 22. Verse 36, there was a, a man that came to, to question Jesus, to test him, see what he was going to say. And so he said this, it says in verse 34, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, somebody slick, thought he was going to trip up Jesus, he said, uh, he asked him a question, testing him and saying, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Which is the most important commandment? You know, there's a bunch of them. Which, which one's the most important? Thinking, hey, if Jesus says one, then we, you know, we can know, because they're all important. We all know that. And so what Jesus says, he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, which is what we talked about in the first four commandments. Commandments with, deal with man's relationship to God. And this is the first and the great commandment. In other words, it's the first in priority. Verse 39, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. On these two commandments hang all of the law and the prophet. You will fulfill the law if you do these two things. So what he's saying there is basically uh, love your neighbor like you love yourself. Now, how many of you guys are really good at loving yourself? You don't have to raise your hand, but I'll just raise mine. I'm really good at me. I like me. I know what I like. I do th nice things for me. It's easy. Hey, I like that. I'm going to get it for me. You know, hey, I like to be loved this way. And I'll tell people, hey, this is how you love me. But it's much harder to love other people. Number one, we don't know what they like. And number two, we're not diligent enough to listen to what they like or how they need to be loved. So Jesus said, love your neighbor like you love yourself. Listen to them. Find out what makes them tick. Find out what blesses them. And then do it. And when you do that, you'll be doing what Jesus does for us. 
1 Corinthians chapter 13 is usually read at weddings. But I'm going to read it in the context of love. Now, I'm not saying weddings have nothing to do with love. What I'm saying is that we oftentimes think, well, that's only for the marriage relationship. But when Paul's writing about the gift of love, being able to love people, he's talking about it in the context of the church. Loving people. And, and, and so he says in verse 1 of chapter 13, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but I have not love, I've become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy to bless the church and understand all the mysteries and all the knowledge, and though I have all faith so that God could use me to remove mountains, but I don't have love, I'm nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but I have not love, it doesn't really profit me anything. Love suffers long and is kind. I love this because when I think of patience, most people say, don't pray for patience because then you'll get it and it's hard. Well, yeah, because the, the true rendering of the word patience is long suffering. No one likes to suffer. But here it says you'll, you'll suffer long. Love does not envy. That's like coveting. Love does not parade itself. It's not prideful. It's not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It does not seek its own. It's not provoked. It thinks no evil does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, it hopes all things, it endures all things. Love never fails. It doesn't ever fail because it's something that God does. And God can't fail. He can't lie. So if you ever want to do something kind of nice, uh, sit down and read 1 Corinthians verse 1 through that first sentence in verse 8 and insert for the word love, Insert the name Jesus. Jesus never fails. Jesus suffers long and is kind. Jesus does not envy. Jesus does not parade himself. Jesus is not puffed up. And then go on and on. Because that's what you'll see is that if you're able to do those things, it's not you, it's him. So let's read uh, verse 11 through 14 in chapter 13. He says, And do this... Fulfill the law by loving your neighbor as you love yourself. And here's the reason you're to do this. He says, do this knowing the time, that it's now high time to awake out of your sleep, for now our salvation is nearer than when we first believed. The night is far spent. The day is at hand. Therefore, let us cast off the works of darkness and let us put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the day, not in revelry, not in drunkenness, not in lewdness and lust, not in strife and in envy, but, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lusts. When we put on Christ, it means to put off the deeds of the old man, to, to put away those things that continue to blind us and bind us. Sin does those things. It blinds us. It's like smearing you know, grease on your glasses and going, why can't I see? Sin is like that. It, it darkens our vision. And then it binds us. It puts chains on our wrists. We can no longer do what we know is right. And it grinds us. It just ruins who God has made us in Christ. And so, to put off and to put on. He urges us because the time is short. Remember I talked earlier about how you know, there, there's this moment that we're in right now in, the, in the, the large picture of the church where we are able to proclaim the gospel to all who will hear and anyone who responds in faith and repentance can come on in and be part of the kingdom. But there's coming a time where that will no longer be offered. And when it's no longer offered, it's too late. The door is closed and for everyone else it's done. Every knee will bow Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Now, many people go, well, that's going to be like the greatest worship service. And for those who believe, it will be. But it says every knee, every person that's ever existed, the people that reject Christ, the people that say, God's not real, you guys are all fools, you know what they're going to be doing? They're going to be praising God because they're going to see Him in His reality on the throne, and they're going to say, 
He's God. Why did I not see that before? And there will be sorrow and wailing and gnashing of teeth. And so in this moment that we're in, we get to do as much as we can, as much as depends upon us to prevent that for people who do not believe. I'm not saying that to be a downer. I'm saying that to urge you, go there for, make disciples, share Jesus. Many people will not hear the message of the gospel until they see it lived out. You have to love your neighbor and that's where it starts. So let me ask you, how good are you at loving your neighbor? Now let me ask you another thing. Do you tell them that it was God that did it through you or do you give the credence to yourself? Because when you love your neighbor and you do things for them that no one else will do and you say, I did this because Jesus loves you, you may think that that's kind of an insignificant thing but there are many people that have never heard, number one, Jesus loves you. They've only heard that Jesus came to judge you. But my Bible says in John chapter 3, verse 17, that God did not send Jesus into the world to condemn the world, but that through him they might be saved. Jesus is the ark in the Old Testament. Jesus is the ark of Noah that brought all of Noah's family through the flood that was to judge the world and save them for this new abundant life. So let me ask you, are you seeing that God's giving you opportunities? Steve was teaching a couple weeks ago. He said, pray that God would give you opportunities to love people like Jesus does. And you know what? You'll find out that he was already doing that. You just weren't looking for him. God's giving you and I opportunities to love our neighbor, and they may not be the ones that we like. And I have an example, and then I'll close. Turn with me to Acts in uh, chapter 16. How are we to love our neighbor? And number two, who is our neighbor? Is it just the guy that lives across the street? Or is it something more than that? Well, in Acts chapter 16, Timothy and Paul and Silas have crossed over the Aegean Sea. They've left Asia Minor where Turkey is. And they've arrived in this place called Philippi. And when they get there, they're expecting to meet a man from Philippi that's been praying for him to come. And they don't find a man. They find a woman, and she's down at the river. That's where they would gather if there was no synagogue in those communities. And she's there praying. And so Paul and Silas, they share the gospel, and she's ready. She's like, cool, I want to follow Jesus. And so she becomes saved. They baptize her right there in the river. And the reality is, that's the beginning of the church at Philippi that Paul writes to in the New Testament. But after he gets done talking to her and they have services there. He's walking throughout the community. He hasn't left yet. And while he's walking throughout the community, there's this woman who's demon-possessed. And she proclaims stuff about everybody. And so there's these men that have taken her, made her a slave, and they, they basically, they, make, they exploit her and they make money off of her telling people their fortunes. She's a fortune teller. Well, only because she's demon-possessed. And so Paul is annoyed by this lady because every time he's walking through town, this lady gives him a little uh, you know, advertisement and says, hey, those two men right there, they're the servants of the Most High God and they came to proclaim salvation. Now that's good news, right? You want people to know that, but you don't want them to know it from the enemy. The demons do proclaim that Jesus is Lord, but they don't follow him. So she's captive to this demon-possessed. She's demon-possessed. She... You know, and on top of that, she's possessed by people and they're exploiting her so they can make money. It's commerce. It's big business. And so Paul, actually driven by annoyance, God uses his annoyance. And Paul says, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of that lady. And, and the demon does. She no longer is a fortune teller. She's free. Truly free. She's been set free by the king. And so... The men that are exploiting her for money are going, hey, our meal ticket has just been taken from us. We don't like Paul and Silas. Let's take him to the judge. So they do. And that judge says, you're right. He is a disturbance. They're teaching things that are messing with our society. Put him in jail. So Paul goes to jail in order to love his neighbor, this woman. He never met that woman, other than he was annoyed by her. But he loved her according to truth. But then, while they're in the jail, here's another story of loving your neighbor. They're in the jail, and they're just praising the Lord because God used them. And it's about midnight, real late at night, and they're praying, and they're singing praise songs, you know, what most people do in jail. 
And as they're singing praise songs filled with the Spirit, the Lord shakes the jail to where all the doors open. And the jailer wakes up and he's freaked out because if you lose your subjects or your prisoners, they kill you instead of the prisoners they were going to kill. And so the, the jailer wakes up and go, sees all the doors open and he gets ready to basically kill himself with his knife, his sword. And Paul knows this and he goes, hey, 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 don't be hasty. We're all still in here. What? Why? You could have been free. And so the jailer runs into Paul and Silas and he says, how can I be saved? You're free. You're in jail and you're free. You're worshiping the Lord and you're not even trying to get out because you're already free. I don't get that. How do I get that? And so Paul leads him in a prayer of salvation and his whole family gets saved. The same jailer that's watching over them probably was there when they were scourging Paul and punishing him takes him to his house, Paul leads them to the Lord, and basically the jailer takes care of his wounds, more than likely. Who's your neighbor? Is it your boss that you can't stand? Is it someone that keeps you captive long hours? You know, who's your, who's your neighbor? Is it the guy down the street? You know, uh, just last week I had this guy that, big long story, and I won't tell it right now for time's sake, but there he was just yelling obscenities at this guy that was walking down the street. Now, I don't know what happened, and the kid might have deserved it, but the reality is, I'm not just supposed to love the guy that he was cussing at. I'm supposed to love that neighbor that's not very lovable. How do I do that? I can't. The Lord has to do it through me. And that's what I want to make the point of this morning. If you can't love your neighbor, realize that you're in a good spot because none of us can, apart from the Spirit of God dwelling in us. So let's pray. Father God, thank you for showing us the way. Thank you for showing us Jesus loving us while we were yet sinning against you. Thank you that your disciples took you seriously. They were experimental Christians. You taught them something and they tried it out. Lord, help us to be a group of Christians that take your word seriously and take what you've shown us and just try to do it. And when we fail, Lord, Teach us to ask, Lord, fill us with your spirit so we can do what you've commanded us to do. You promised us, lo, I am with you until the end of the age. Lord, be with us. Fill us. Empower us to be your light in this valley. Shine brightly. Let our works, uh, let, let the, the world see what you do through us. Let your light so shine through us that men may see your good works and give glory to our God in heaven. Thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name. Amen.